Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we have another of our interviews today. This is with James Timpson, who is the CEO of Timpson Group. And loads of people know it as a shoe repair shop, don't they? So this is a, a family business which goes back generations. James took over from his dad as CEO in 2002, but it's got a really rich history. And it's a business that's evolved from like making, selling and repairing shoes to key cutting, mobile phone repairs, engraving stuff, repairing watches. They've also got the photography shop, Snappy Snaps and Max Spielman. Then there's the dry cleaning business, which includes Jeeves and Johnson's. And they've even got a hotel as well. So it's quite a varied business. It is. And the thing that I am particularly interested in is that he manages this business so differently from other people. He gives so much autonomy to the thousands of people who he employs, particularly those who are running his outlets. And as a model of how you devolve power in order to motivate people and become more successful. I think what he has to say will resonate with people and also just offer really important lessons. He's joined us now. Let's get stuck in. James, thanks for joining us. The last time I saw you was quite a few years ago and I was interviewing you for a BBC News piece about working with your dad. You're still working with your dad, aren't you? Because this is your business is fascinating because it was started, wasn't it, by your great, great, grandfather, William Timpson. So tell us about this, because he was pretty young when he kicked off this business, wasn't he? Yeah, so this is all sort of in the family journal. So I can't sort of, I never met the man because he died in (laughs) 1932. But um, he was brought up in a little village just outside Northampton called Desborough, which at the time was famous for making flags for the military. But when the, the military didn't need as many flags, he had to find a job. So he left it when he was 10 to go to Manchester, where some of his relatives had gone to try and get a job. So he got on the train, but he got on the wrong train and he ended up at Sheffield Station for the night with no money, didn't know what to do. And he slept on the station. And the next morning, a man came up to him and asked him what was going on. And he said he didn't have any money, crying, all this sort of stuff. So the guy lent him some money. He got to Manchester. Then he started selling shoelaces on his bike. And ever since then, there's always been this sort of vein of you look after people when they're having a tough time. We'll get onto the philanthropy in the business later. But actually, it goes all the way back to your great-great-grandfather sort of just carrying with him that a, a stranger had helped him out and therefore he had a duty to help others. Yeah. And you know, this has always been mentioned. If you look at all of the family history newsletters and this sort of stuff, it's always sort of been that vein going through. So then he got to Manchester, started selling shoelaces, opened up a shoe shop with his uncle who he ended up falling out with. So he ended up opening up on his own. And this is when Manchester was booming. It was, you know, it was just all going. And then he opened up another shop and another shop. And then his son, my great-grandfather, when he was quite young, he basically took over the reins because the founder was a bit of a hypochondriac. And because he was from Desbrus or Kettering area, and Kettering was the capital for the shoemaking industry. He used to go back there at weekends because his doctor said the air was better. So he basically spent (laughs) most of his time back in Kettering and his son was the guy that really grew the business. So it went out of Manchester into Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield and started in shoe repairs in 1903. But I mean, until we might get onto the the history of what you've expanded into and what you've done, but for decades, I think people thought of you as primarily, didn't they, as a shoe retailer? Yeah, so when I was younger, no one really had heard of Timpson Shoe Repairs because we were the number three chain and there were loads of independents. And the Timpson Shoe business was a bit like sort of Clark's maybe mm. is today, something like that. That's right. More northern, but it was all over the country. I am always fascinated 
by companies that remain in family ownership. I don't know if you've ever read Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks. It's one of the most amazing books about a business going through the bit the dynasty. Oh, no, how we put that one on my list. And how it, <laughs> how it changes and how, I mean, it'd be interesting to talk to you about whether you seem like a very entrepreneurial individual, but quite often that entrepreneurial streak dissipates, is weakened, you know, as you go through the generations. Now, I'm really intrigued that it doesn't seem to have happened in your case. But I think you're, you, there, was some, there was obviously some row a, a couple of generations ago, because I think was it your your grandfather was kicked? Was it he who was kicked That's out right. of the business? So, 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 so let's just go back to yeah. 1932 when yeah. the founder died. Yeah. Death duties needed to be paid. In those yeah. days, it was significant. So they floated the business on the stock market, although the family still had 80%. But then my great-grandfather had 14 children. So you can imagine how, how dissipated <laughs> the shares were. So you could walk past someone in the street and you didn't even know they were a shareholder or a member of your family probably. <laughs> So it got to the point where the shares were dissipated. My grandfather was running the business. At that point, what, did, what would he have controlled? A minority stake? Yes, probably about 10%, something like that. And then there was then you had our side of the family and the other side of the family. Right. And basically- there Oh, there a, was a rift in the family. Yeah, there's there. a massive rift. And my dad and my grandfather basically got ousted by my grandfather's cousin, Jeffrey. And it was sort of a board meeting where it was five against two. And my grandfather was fired. When I was a sort of cub reporter, there was this enormously famous, some would say notorious business in this country called Hanson Trust, which was a conglomerate that was just buying up everything. And they bought your business, didn't they? Yeah, they bought Timpson as part of a whole chain of retail stores, like Alders. I mean, virtually all of them have gone bust now. Mm. And my dad had this idea of doing a management buyout because our founder and my great-grandfather had bought a load of freehold shops. So so just to be clear, because it's important to understand this. So as I understand it, the business was bought by another conglomerate first. I can't remember what it was called now. UDS, United U- Drapery That's Stores. Right. UDS. And then at that point, is the family basically out of the business at that stage? Yeah, yeah. Had, a, had a bit of a payout and then it was right, what are we going to do? So you're basically a family that's got some money as a result of the entrepreneurialism of your great, great grandfather, yeah. as it were. You don't know where you're going. Some of them presumably just go off and have a nice life. Hanson Trust then buys this business. It's not going brilliantly. So um, Cousin Jeffrey, mm. who took over oh, yeah. from my grandfather. What happened to Cousin Jeffrey? Well, he then got fired and my dad was brought back in to try and sort the thing out just before Hanson bought it. Okay. But he, does he go and then work for Hanson? Yes. Oh, okay. So he's he's inside this conglomerate. Yeah. Even right. though he never met them, he said there was an office of about seven people. Right. And you had to fax, in the days of fax machines, you had to fax any capital request through and it was signed off by James Hanson. And then in 1983, that's when your dad did the management buyout. And that you was were, the big one. And you were what, 11, 12 then? Yeah. So what was that like? Because you were growing up. And did he have the money? How did he raise the money? Well, he didn't have the money. But then he met a guy who's become a family friend for many years and non-exec director who's a lawyer who said, no, you've got these assets, you've got all these shops. Because we had all these freehold property and we had a big one in Oxford and a big one in Leeds. And so if you can do a sale and lease back, sell the shops, raise the money and then just rent them back. This is a a classic form of, of financing. So he basically borrowed the money against the assets of the business he was buying. Correct. And then everything was sort of great for about a year. And then it was tough, you know, having to pay rent and cash flow and everything else. So he thought, well, I can't justify opening another shoe shop. So if I can't justify opening a new one, I need to sell. So the plan was sell the shoe shops, keep the shoe repair shops. And that was at a time where niche retailers were quite cool. Sock shop, tie rack. Uh, There was even shops that just sold eggs. So what what year are we in? This is 1987. Right. And so you're pretty young at the 
Yeah, 16. And do you remember, was there a lot of anxiety around the house about the risks that were being taken? Do no, you remember I just remember that? my dad was never there. Oh, I see. He was working all the time. It was, must have been very stressful for yeah. him. So what did he do? He, he pulls out of shoe retailing. He managed to sell the shoe retailing shops to a company called Oliver's, which has now basically become Shoe Zone. Um, ah, which is pretty cheap shoes, isn't it? Really? Yeah, which is all over the country. And bizarrely, the, yeah. the, the guy that runs Shoe Zone founded it. It's, in fact, it's second generation, him and his brother Charles, a guy called Anthony Smith. Uh, we were at school together. He's a really nice guy. So we sort of <laughs> we have the odd day out going around shops together. So can I ask about your childhood then? So that's all the business stuff that's going on while you're growing up. And you, you know, you were saying you, your dad wasn't there much probably because he was working so hard. But you grew up in a house with lots of foster children as well, didn't you? So what was it like growing up? When I look back, it was pretty chaotic at times. Yeah. Because you'd have a sort of a period of calm where it was just the three of us. I've got an older sister and a brother, Edward, who's just younger than me. And then you'd turn up for breakfast one morning and these kids had arrived overnight and they were having breakfast with you. You didn't know anything about them. They were wearing your clothes and then they would go to school with you. Wow. So, And some of them were brilliant and charming and loving. Others were really damaged and difficult and, you know, just the noise, the shouting, the language. You know, we we were taught swear words way younger than most kids were. All the foster kids that came to us were always younger than, I think that was my, my parents' stipulation, they were always younger than us. So you're growing up in this environment. Obviously, there's tons of kids, and as you say, it's quite chaotic. Clearly, your mum and dad are really big into helping other people. Was there always this sense, though, that you needed to be part of the business? Was it, were you know, you were, were you being brought into the business from a young age? Was, was you were going to say groomed, but you were worried about that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was worried. <laughs> no, no, because I think for quite a long time, my, my parents didn't think that they were going to keep the business because ah. the plan was originally to float it because, you know, as I mentioned before about tie rack and sock shop, it was all happening in those days for these niche retailers. And that was the plan. So he did think he was going to turn it around and, you know, fix it and then yeah. and then float it again, take some money out. So my mum died eight, uh, eight years ago now. So she said to him, listen, you'd be a nightmare as a chairman of a floated company. We don't need to do this. Let's just keep it private. But from my point of view, it was never sort of talked about or anything, but I just love working in the shops. So even from an early age, if there's nothing happening at home, I say, right, just kind of get the bus to Northwich or Wilmslow and just being in the shop, serving customers. And even today, the sound of putting money in the till and just serving a customer, I love it. And the shops then were primarily the shoe repairs, were they? It was just shoe repair shops. Right. And it was predominantly doing shoe repairs with the odd the odd key cutting. Can you do it? Have yeah. you got the skill? Yeah, so shoe, shoe repairs <laughs> is one of those things like riding a bike. When you know how to do it, you never, literally, I can, I can do it, no problem at all. Key cutting is harder because it's recognising the blanks. Watch repairs terrifies me. So have you ever tried to do it? I've tried it. I'm just not good enough. And it's one of those ones I thought, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so a decision is taken to keep the business private. But of course, access to capital is going to be more limited in those circumstances. But you have expanded and diversified massively. How have you done that? Well, we've never really taken on debt. You know, we've sort of dipped into the overdraft maybe 10 years ago. So how have you funded these acquisitions? Just through the cash that the business has generated. Just cash flow. Yeah, we don't take much out of the business. Retail businesses, when you get them going, can be really cash generative. And we've always been really conservative about how we do things. I don't think I'm a risky person, even though lots of people would look at what we've done as risky, but I, I don't like risk at all. And do you have, because you're, sorry, I'm, I'm going to get the generations wrong, whichever of your ancestors <laughs> decided to buy the business back on the basis of uh, effectively selling off the properties and then leasing them back, do you now own any assets or is it all leased? We've got about 50 shops we own. So you don't have much of an asset base in that sense. We own all of our offices, warehouses, and that kind of stuff. But you, you make your money quicker by opening new shops at, 
are busy. How would you describe your business to people now, though? Because you've got, what, something like 17 different businesses within your group. And, you know, we mentioned shoe repairs, which you're famously known for. But there's so much more than that now, isn't there? You've got hospitality. You've got dry cleaning. There's all sorts. I would say it depends who it is and depends where they live. Right. <laughs> so, so everyone knows Timpson. It's a bit like Greg's. Everyone sort of, and they'll always tell a story of, I went in recently and got a key cut and the colleague was very nice and so on. If someone lives in the South, I'll say one of our, we have a photo business called Snappy Snaps because yep. everyone knows that. But if I say Max Spielman, no one's heard of that, but actually it's three times bigger than Snappy Snaps, but it's more northern. It's our photo chain up there. We mentioned about Johnson's of Cleaners, which actually used to be much bigger than it is now. I think we've got about 180 Johnson's shops, but in the old days before we owned it, it had about 600. So yeah, it depends where you live, really. But I would say it's a family retail business. Now, you recently, I think, published a book called is the happy index is that is that right? right yes and, and i was looking at it and i think i'm right in saying that you make a point of not having real-time sales data from your shops which goes against the grain of how conventionally you're supposed to manage a business why don't you want that real-time data for two reasons one is it's really expensive to get and the other is who's going to look at it and is it actually that important so how often do you see what's going on in an individual branch? So, well, yesterday I went round, I did 14 shops in Bournemouth and Poole yesterday. So, so, that's saw, a, so you do a lot of walking around yeah, I do a lot of walking around. At the end of every day, I get an email at seven o'clock that says how the sales were in, in the shops, just a total. You know, how did Timpson do? How did Max so, do? So they do have to tote it up at the end of each, you know. Yeah. You press a button on the till at the end of the day, right. the Z reading, yeah. prints out a piece of paper, you go to a little computer that's in the corner of the shop and you type in how much you took on shoe repairs and key cutting. And then you press done. That seems quite old school. I mean, yeah. when I was working in a mobile phone shop, that's how we told like the area manager how we'd done that day. But that's all you need, you reckon? To that's have all a we need because there are, there are two facts in our business. One, we don't really have any stock that we need to worry about. The most important thing we worry about is not running out. And the other is if we have an amazing colleague in the shop and they're replaced by someone who is far from amazing, it's a 50% difference in sales. So that is the only factor we're really interested in. Have we got an amazing colleague? This is really interesting about the quality of the people who work for you. You're saying that a manager can have a 50% impact on the sales uh, of a particular outlet. And, and that is immediate. One is How? What, what do they do? Well, one is they're honest. Not everyone is. Two, they sell. So you come in for one key and they'll say, we want the second one half price. And they will say yes. And they'll try and, because a lot, a lot of customers come in with quite tricky things. And how do you do this? And we just want them to say yes, and then work out how to do it. And that's what makes the difference. And am I right in thinking the way you kind of performance assess your managers is by asking the people who work for them questions about the manager's personal life. Like, do you know how many, when, when the last holiday was they had? And do you know how many kids they've got and things like that? Can you explain that, yeah. that theory? So, so, so the most important job in our business is an area manager. So an area manager has 45 shops, 110 colleagues, something like that. And it's their job to be the best boss their colleagues have ever had. And to be the best boss doesn't mean you're a pushover, you give them everything they want. It means that you know them and you are kind to them. And when we say know them, it means the names, you know, how old, how many kids do they have if they have kids? What are their names? Where they last go on holiday? The football team they support? Their hobbies? What are they into? Because the problems that colleagues have are rarely to do with work. They're often to do with things outside of work. And it's their job to build up that trusting relationship so they can help them outside of work. So you will basically pick some colleagues or people who work for the area manager and then ask them if they know 
what their kids yeah, we give them a test. their boss. And yeah. You and do a test. We do a test. Yeah. <laughs> and if they don't get 80%, we've got a problem with that. And the problem is with who? The colleagues not knowing or the boss not the telling boss. them, right? So that's why we spend a fortune in Costa Coffee, McDonald's, Starbucks, Greg's, because our area managers take the colleagues out for a chat. And it's not about work. So we hate appraisals. We don't do budgets. We don't do anything like that. It's just, how are you? What if you get a boss, though, who doesn't, who's private and... You know, got stuff going on. They don't want everyone who works for them to know. Well, that's their prerogative. But <laughs> they're the people who, when you go into our shops, they're quite sort of outgoing, sparky people. And they're generally quite good at being forthcoming. And you must have had, though, bad ones, as it were. How quickly do you pick them up and how do you deal with that? Yes, we do. Uh, fail fast. That's my view. And also, so many businesses are just caught up in HR nightmares. Do the HR team... You know, hundreds of letters, all the process and stuff. We're big believers in let's have an honest conversation. Maybe a difficult conversation. We actually train. We have a training course how to have difficult conversations and actually be kind to someone rather than going through the bullshit process a lot of the time where everyone knows where it's going to end up. Let's just have a conversation and let's be generous and kind. Because especially when we do an acquisition, we're inheriting people we wouldn't normally select. You know, we haven't selected them. So there will be people there who don't get our culture, aren't our kind of personality because we recruit just on personality. CVs for us, waste of time. And so that's when we need to make sure it, it takes probably three to five years when you buy another business or start anything up new to get everything right culturally. The other thing you guys are, are famous for, you kind of pioneered the recruitment of ex-offenders. I know you're chair of the Prison Reform Trust as well, aren't you? How, how did that come about? Uh, I was lucky. Um if you sort of go back another step, so when we talked about fostering before, a lot of the foster children were there because their mums were in prison. We lived really near Style Prison, which is a women's prison by Manchester Airport. And my mum was a sort of an expert in the babies, and a lot of them were difficult. You know, they had, you know, we had methadone in the fridge for them, and it was goodness, it was yeah. difficult. So, and I was always sort of intrigued. I always felt it was wrong that why are these kids with us when they should be with their mum, and then. Over the years, you know, when I started running the business, some of my colleagues would get into a fight, be locked up for the weekend, fine, get back into work. I'm not that bothered. They're a really good colleague. Come on, you learn, learn your lesson. And then I was invited into a local prison where we live near Warrington on like a sort of local business people tour around. And this guy showing me around was brilliant, Matthew, 19 years old. The night he finished his A-levels, went to a nightclub in Warrington, got into a fight, ended up getting a two-year jail sentence. Couldn't go to university, thought everything was done. But I thought he's perfect. He's fun, he's interesting, engaging, he's sparky, our sort of person. I offered him a job and he's still with us today. So it started off wow. with Matthew. And then and what does he do for you today? He runs a shop, bizarrely, it's the shop nearest to the prison I recruited him from. Oh. Yeah. Wow. And he's great. He's got, you know, he's got a lovely family and he's great. And and so you worked out <laughs> that these people had a lot to offer. So how did you build it from there? So I didn't tell anybody in the business what I'd done. And so I thought, well, Matthew's good, and I saw a lot of potential of other people in the prison. So let me go and do some more hunting them down. So for probably about two years, I spent every other Friday walking around the wings of the prisons in the northwest of England with the governor, sitting in cells, talking to people to see who I thought was sparky to work in our business. I probably got to about 20, but you know, I'd, I'd made some mistakes. I picked some wrong people. I was learning. Um, and then I told everyone in the business what I'd done. And the reaction was two things. Well, one was actually quite interesting was afterwards, quite a few of my senior colleagues came to me to say, I'm really pleased you've done that because when I was younger, I got into a few scrapes and didn't want to tell you. But the main thing they said was the people you got are really good. Let's go and get some more. And what did your dad say? He's fully up for it. My dad is, is amazing. We've always worked incredibly well together because if he has an idea that I'm not sure about, he just does it and let's see what happens. And if I got an idea he's not sure about, I just do it. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, we don't do it again. And he wasn't grumpy that you'd gone behind his back. 
Oh, no, I told. I, I did tell him that okay. I was going into prison, yeah. When you said you kind of picked some wrongs along the way, how? what are you basing it on? And, and have you had mistakes that have happened where you've had people working for you and then something has gone wrong because of their background? One of the problems we had in the early days is I recruited a colleague in Belfast and he was working in one of our shops and he was involved. It wasn't him, but he was involved in a murder number of years before and one of the victim's relatives came to the shop and got a key cut so went to the press and we had the headline in the belfast evening telegraph killer cobbler cuts keys mm. which was for most i mean fortunately we don't have a marketing or pr department because they would have probably told me not to do it so i thought i'm just going to weather this and i'm going to just look look after the colleague who's trying to rebuild their life so that was a sort of low point i thought if i can get through that and did okay. he stay with the business? He's still with us today it's great so i learned we don't recruit any sex offenders we don't recruit people who haven't come to the end of their criminal journey. Basically, men under the age of 25, we don't find them mature enough. I mean, we've got some that work, but not, not that many. And we don't, we don't recruit people who've just got so many complexities that having a full-time job with us is actually not helpful for them. And, and is there now an institutional structure for recruiting from the prison service? Is it still sort of piecemeal, you know, you or one of your colleagues going around prisons, or do, does the prison service refer people to you and then you have a process for working out who's right? A bit of both. So I have a colleague called Darren, who I actually recruited from prison, who leads our prison work. So he's in prisons three days a week, interviewing and also helping other employers because now recruiting an ex-offender if you don't do it, you're not really a, a diverse employer. So, oh, so other businesses are oh, yeah. your lead. Now. Oh yeah. So in the early days, we go in, we get the best people. Yeah. Now we're competing. <laughs> so we 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 had one probably about a year ago. Now there's a women's prison in Staffordshire called Drake Hall, and we went there really excited. We've got a few vacancies coming up. But Greg's had been there the week before and nicked all the good people. <laughs> well, that's actually that's a good thing. It but, is a very good yeah. thing. But four years ago, I set up a thing called the Employment Advisory Boards, because the problem with the prisons is that the governor and the team that run them are not commercially minded people and they move around a lot. So sometimes you get really good links with, with a prison and then they would go and, and then you couldn't recruit anybody. So I had this idea of getting entrepreneurial chief execs to work with the governor, recruit some other local businesses, chamber of commerce and so on. And um, so we've now got that in 92 prisons. So all the prisons that release people, we've got an employment advisory board, business leaders and well-known businesses that you'll have, have heard, heard about a lot. And when we started, 14% of prison leavers got a job after six months. This was four years ago. And it's now over 32%. That's very impressive. Yes. And can I just, just put this in numbers in terms of your business? The number of people you employ is how many and how many of those are ex-offenders? So one in nine is an ex-offender. In your business? In our business, which is about 580. But actually, we don't really know because I'm sure there are other people who just lied in their application form. Right. There's loads more we want to ask you, but let's have a little bit of a break. And so coming back to the business and what you guys do now, I mean, you had a tough time in COVID, like lots of Horrendous. businesses. Yeah. And then where are things now and how are you doing and where are you going next? We're in a good place. I'm slightly concerned about the next six months, what's going to happen. But these are facts out of our control. So the biggest one is the national living wage which I'm a big supporter of paying our colleagues as much as we can afford, but it's a big increase. And the issue is not necessarily the increase in cost for us, which is about eight, eight and a half million pounds a year. It's the compression you get. Because if you give everybody a 10% pay increase, including our senior colleagues, that is a vast amount of money. And I think that's disproportionate. So you're ending up getting this compression of the middle management. If you joined us today and you were working with someone who'd been with us 10 years, the differentiation in pay is not enough. And how are you going to manage that? picking our way through, I think. One is we're going to put our prices up. There's no, no way about it. And I cannot believe the inflation 
predictions that are coming through, I, I think it's going to be higher. I can't see it, see it not being higher. How, when you say you're going to have to put them up, what, what are we talking percentage wise? About 5%. That's what we're working on. So if you're considering having to put up prices to pay for this, you must be worried about the cost of your business because, you know, we, we see so many businesses on the high street struggle with the operating costs now and, you know, businesses go and bust left, right and centre. What do you think is the future for the high street now? I think it's a, a game of two halves. Some high streets are incredibly successful and we can't find a shop to open there and our rents are going up. Where there are others that I just, I can't see them really recovering. There's just too and many what's the difference? So what is the difference between a thriving high street and that that's become a sort of wasteland? There's a number of factors. There's a big one around accessibility, parking, how people get in and out, the cost of that. There's another around actually how nice is that environment to be in. People want to feel safe. They don't want litter. They don't want graffiti. They want to be there to hang out with their friends. And also it's where landlords have made some good decisions. So I can give you lots of examples where the regeneration of town centres has been fantastic and others where either the councils or, or specific landlords haven't got it right. You know, local authorities are struggling with money. Obviously, if you've got booming businesses, you're getting business rates in. There's a, You get into a virtuous circle if you can regenerate. What would you say to a local council? What advice would you give them about if they've got a struggling high street? What's the first thing they've got to do? To recognise that these... Vacant shops aren't necessarily shops. They can be houses, they can be libraries, they can be doctor surgeries. People got it in their heads that high streets have, all have to be shops and cafes. It's not their buildings that can be multi-purpose. But if you put the library there, other people will come and they'll use the other shops and you'll regenerate. Yes, but you've also got to have a car park that's not seven quid for two hours. Does it make a difference to your business then if you are on a high street that's, you know, got high footfall and got not lots of nice shops? Because, you know, for example, if I ever go into a Timpsons, I go directly there. I'm like, oh, I need to get this, you know, my heels on my stilettos sorted or whatever else. I wouldn't necessarily just walk past a Timpsons and go, ooh, and then pop in. So does it matter to you where you are? Yeah, it does. Because key cutting, bizarrely, is a bit of an impulse purchase. Uh, a it? lot of people, you know, you may go, I need to get my keys cut. But it's one of the things like, I need to get done at some point. Right, I'm, I've seen it, so I'll get it done. And I imagine with the digital stuff, you know, on your phone, I imagine quite a lot of the photo stuff is impulse, is it not? Yeah, it's also most of our photo customers are grannies or people who just had young kids. That's where the business is. But the, the high streets that are busy are still our most profitable locations, even though most of our shops are in out-of-town supermarkets. The ones in high streets are still the busiest and most profitable. Excellent. Can I just ask, because this is something that's on all of our minds at the moment, you have this famous structure of trusting your managers. You devolve an enormous amount of responsibility to them. I just wondered, have you thought about the sort of catastrophe that we've witnessed in the post office, where not only didn't trust them, they actively disbelieved them, you know, and believed a machine. Do you understand how an institution can get itself into that mess where it stops believing people? It's absolutely shocking what happened. I think it's cultural and it's arrogance. And it's the fact that you don't trust the people who serve the customers. So in our business, if we want to find out how to do anything new, let me give you an example, car keys. No one's really excited about car keys apart from us. We love car keys. <laughs> and if we want to cut more car keys, I don't go to speak to a supplier. I don't go and speak around the board table. I go and find the six or seven colleagues who love car keys more than anything else, sit in a room and say, right, what are all the things we need to do to help me take more money? And every answer, every problem is solved by the colleagues who serve customers and put money in the till. And 
the culture at the post office, the, the fact that they went on and on. They put 268 people into prison. I just think it's absolutely disgrace. Can I ask you a bit about, we talk a lot on the show about AI and it strikes me hearing you say about, you know, the, the till system in your shops and things like that. Do you see a, a time when AI is going to be part of what you do? Because there might come a point where we can just 3D print our repair shoes or we can, you know, do some type of AI thing, which could make you guys redundant. Are you thinking about stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think from so far as our business goes, I mean, I'm not a techie person. I don't really understand it. But from what I interpret of what my friends in business are saying, there's an advantage to business like ours of processing some of the back-end parts of the business. So, for example, you walk into one of our shops and you bring a key they don't know what, the colleague doesn't know what it is. They phone up our call centre and we've got 25 colleagues there. And you know that may be something that's AI'd and those colleagues will then end up working in a shop rather than being on a call. So it's more the sort of customer service back-end stuff. But the sort of associated issue, we think that AI will have an impact in terms of improving productivity in this country, getting the growth rate up. We have a massive problem in the UK uh, that the economy hasn't grown for years. Inequalities have got worse. You are a business that some would say is fairly traditional. You're not radical or cutting edge, but you're growing and you, you're giving good employment. Do you think about what this country needs to do to get back on a more hopeful path? I think the civil service, the public service, needs to remember that there's a sort of clue in the name, service. I'm really interested to hear what the, you know, what the politicians start talking about over the next few months in the lead up to the election. So I want to improve public service. And I think they have a problem that they're not actually... You know, they're, they're amazing. I mean, I deal with a lot of colleagues in the Ministry of Justice. They're amazing. They work incredibly hard. They're very, very passionate. But a lot of the day-to-day -day services that I see and experience are just not good enough. And one of the books I read a few years ago is Parkinson's Law. Don't we've heard of Parkinson's Law? I just think there is a big problem in the civil service that's just inefficient and it is inward looking and it's forgotten that it's here to provide a service to the public. We interviewed uh, Richard Walker a few weeks ago and, you know, there's a few similarities with you there, isn't there, in terms of, you know, taking over the, the business from your dad and the like. He's got quite heavily involved in politics. You know, he's tried to run for MP and things. Do you, given, you know, what you're saying about public service and things, would you ever see yourself as of getting involved politically? No. <laughs> <laughs> Very simple answer. Yeah, no. My brother Edward is a Tory MP about to, he's stepping down at the election. Uh, not for me. Yeah. What are the terrible stories he tells you then that's put you off? Well, I, the, one, as I run the business. Two, as I'm not actually that political and I'm more interested in getting things done. So I've been I'm just finishing off doing a review into prison officer training for the Ministry of Justice. I found that absolutely fascinating. And I think the skills I've learned running our business, I can actually help in other ways, sort of more behind the scenes on how you get things happening. Yeah. You are now incredibly broadly based. Have you got your eye on a, another business to add to the, the fold? Well, if I was going to show you, if I should have brought it, our board papers got a board meeting next week. We've got no deals on. It's like it's unusual for us. There's nothing on the radar. What's um, gone wrong? I don't know. We've we bought them all, I think. We've got quite a few big property projects on at the moment. So we're building a new warehouse. We're restoring this big hotel in France and we're doing a number of dry cleaning factories that are all expensive. So it's probably not a bad thing just to take our foot off the gas for a bit. But saying that, a business always needs to be on the front foot. And you've always, I always think you've got to have something which you know 
if we had that, that would help us grow. Yeah. I heard an interview with your dad once where he talked about how important your wives are in your business lives as well, in terms of, you know, they're kind of, you're the ones at the front of it all, but they're the ones who are keeping everything going behind the scenes. And, you know, you mentioned your mum and her telling your dad not to share a floated business. Tell us about you in terms of your life and because you've got three kids, haven't yeah. you? So my wife is Rasheen. We met at university. And so she's been on this journey with me all the way through. Our kids have all left home now. So our two boys are working in the business. In fact, Bede, our eldest, he started three weeks ago. And our daughter works for Marks and Spencers. And my wife runs a hospitality business. So she's very much involved and just a great source of inspiration on values, culture, and just work-life balance, which I'm not always very good at. And how do you get the family dynamics right then between, you know, everyone having an input into your business? Do you have time where you separate, you know, talking about the business or? Not you... very, I try. You try? I mean, yeah, I try. <laughs> I mean, when my dad and I are together, I would say 90% of the time it's talking shop, really. Yeah. Uh, been, been there. You know, what do you think of that? In the old days, when I first got interested as a journalist in business, it was the norm for the boss particularly in retail, to walk around stores. And then we just went through this phase of management being about theory and lots of the boss class just basically distanced themselves from what used to be called the shop floor. Do you feel that you're sort of part of a dying generation of walking around bosses? No, I think it's. I, I think more people are recognising that it's actually all about getting it right on the shop floor level. So if you look at business that I admire, Greg's. Rasheen Curry, who runs Greg's, is brilliant. And she's out and about all the time seeing the stores because that is how you run the business. You don't run the business from head office. Head office is there to process information, to make sure you pay your taxes and to sort of have a few meetings. But do the you, action's out on the ground. Do you talk to other business leaders then? Yeah, a lot. What type of chats do you have? It could be, I'm thinking of opening a shop in Cleethorpes. How do you do in Cleethorpes? You know, and normally mark out a 10 or avoid this street or something like that. It could be, so for example, national minimum wage when that came through, a few of us chatting about what do you think you're going to do, things like that. And then just friends. So, you know, one of my really good friends is Matt Davis, who used to run Tesco. Another really good friend of mine, Simon Aurora, used to run B&M. You know, we're sort of retailers are a bit of a, can be quite clicky. And your concentration is massively in the UK. You just talked about a French hotel. You feel like a quintessentially British business and retailing is culture specific. We, there are some global brands, but famously quite a lot of British businesses failed when they tried to expand overseas. Do you think you will do more overseas? What's your plan? Well, we've got a business in Ireland, a small business in Ireland, and we want to do more in Ireland. But it is a bit harder because you've got you know, payroll, just all the sort of back-end stuff is harder. There are two other businesses that do what we do in the world. There's one in Europe called Mr. Minute. We bought their UK business years ago. And there's also another business called Mr. Minute in Australia and Japan. And every quarter, we have a Zoom call together. We have a chat about how things are doing. They're lovely people, so we'd never open up against them. And they wouldn't open up against us, I don't think. But I've looked at America. I remember having loads of chats with Walmart. I mean, the scale is scary there. But there were a number of factors that really concern me. One is, in America, is 50 countries rather than, you know, everything is different. The way employment laws work, some people get paid, especially retail, every day, and they can just say at the end of the day, right, I'm not coming back now. In terms of ownership, 
the family owns the business. Do you have a kind of profit participation scheme? What do you think of the sort of John Lewis partnership model? What are your thoughts about the way that ownership motivates employees or essentially getting rewarded for performance in financial terms, you know, improves performance or not? Um, I think you need to be generous as an employer. People work really, really hard. And you need to be kind and generous because we don't have any shares to give out. So, you know, our senior colleagues, they are paid a lot of money. They get big bonuses. They have as many holidays as they like. And they're treated very much as part of the family. So if you go and if you speak to a colleague who just joined us yesterday, the way we talk about it is welcome to the family. But there's still a hierarchy. You're the owner. You're the, you know, and they're the employee. Yeah. So you can't do it by shares, but you can do it by financial incentives. What about the managers of shops, though? So if you're the manager of the nearest shop to here, which is probably... Uh, St. James's Park. You two may be working together and let's make up the numbers, try and get this right. Say both on £400 a week basic pay. So you add up that together, 800 times it by 4.5, which is 3,600, I think. So that sets a sales target for the week. Anything over 3,600 quid in a week, you get 15% share between the two oh, so of you. You've got a massive... So there it is sort of de facto ownership in that sense. Yeah, so, so over a certain baseline, you get 15% of every extra pound yeah, you so make. it's basically a profit share. So right. the average colleague earns okay. about £95 a week bonus. Some are earning three, £400 a week bonus. Hmm. But there's two incentives. One is to work as hard as you can each week. Because a lot of businesses do quarterly targets, which do every week. And the other is to get the wages as low as possible. So because of that formula, you won't want to take me on because I'll up your target. And, and I suppose, actually, because going back to where we were talking about employing ex-offenders, there's not any real incentive to put your hand in the till. What you want to do no, is get because the you're your bonus. Yeah. And especially if you're working together, you're stealing off your mate. Just to wrap things up, can I just ask you about your side hustle as a DJ? Yeah. <laughs> How did this come about? Well, I love EDM music. Electronic home. dance music. Electronic dance yeah. music. And are you going to talk about the drug culture around it? Well, I've never experienced it. <laughs> I'm not one of these really square people. I don't, I've never I've never seen cocaine anywhere. You know, people say, oh, you go to, you know, the kids go to parties, oh, all these people are on yeah. it. I've never even seen it in my life. But hang on, EDM, we're talking presumably in terms of your experiences, but talking about the ecstasy, you know, way. Oh, no, I've only, got in, I've only got into this like the last sort of 10 years. Oh, okay. So, so basically what happened oh, at this home... This is a midlife crisis. Yeah. So at home, <laughs> at home, we had a garage we never used and it's attached to the house. Oh, okay. And the kids, we, so we live in the countryside. Okay. And so we thought, let's turn, let's turn the garage into a pub. So I got carried away. It's like a full-on Irish bar. <laughs> and then the kids started to have all their friends over. Then we wanted to upgrade the sound system. So then got this DJ deck and then I've had DJ lessons. And then our daughter had her 21st. I DJed for that. And then at one of our restaurants in Anglesey in the summer, I DJed there. But it's really hard. And it's, it's Is far- it not just stick a, like, you know, stick into the is, laptop and so get it going? It is terrifying. <laughs> I'd much prefer to, to, to speak in front of But you've got people. the proper expensive turntables yeah, yeah, and all that. Yeah, the Pioneer DJ too. That's the one you want. <laughs> and then, but no, I, I, you know, I am like not very good on it, but I really enjoy it. I love the music. I love practicing, but it is terrifying even performing in front of five people. Who's been your scariest audience to perform in front of then? During the day at the Oyster Catcher in Ross Niger and Anglesey, our restaurant there, because I'm used to practicing in the dark so you can see where all the, all the lights, but this was in the daytime and I couldn't really see what I was doing. So that was the scary one. Yeah, we should have brought some decks in, shouldn't we, and got him to end next the, time. Come back, come back. I'll, 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 I'll send you my Spotify playlist. <laughs> yeah, actually, I would <laughs> really like to see what's on it. Brilliant. Oh well, thank you so much for your time. That was, was really, really yeah, interesting. Thank you. Thanks for joining. Thank us. you very much. So that was gripping. What did you make of it? Yeah, fascinating, and I think. 
what I'm really interested in is how he runs the business. You said this before we started the interview about the autonomy the managers have, the way they've brought in ex-offenders and how that's worked for the business. Like it's way more, isn't it, than just somewhere you go to get your keys cut or your shoes repaired. There's a whole ethos behind of it that's rare on the high street, I think, isn't it, these days? He is, to use that cliche, the real deal. I mean, all that stuff he was saying about how, in a sense, by chance, he found himself in a prison, Mm. decided to take a chance on an offender, and then how that became a big cultural change for the business as they made a policy decision to recruit more people, a very significant, almost 10% of the workforce from the prison community, and then encourage other businesses to do the same. This is a really impressive social achievement, quite apart from you know, just looking at, as you say, the way that he manages the business a bit differently from other people to empower the people he works with. And the other thing that I'm always obsessed by, I mean, and I've done that, I don't know why I've always been fascinated by this, actually all my professional career, it might be because I've got small business people, you know, among my family going back generations. I'm always fascinated by how some businesses remain within a family Mm. and remain successful because the typical history is you get a founding family, they grow to a certain size, they sell to the next, or rather the next generation takes it over. And then often the generation after that just think, well, we love having the money. We can't be bothered to run the business. Mm. And they get rid of it. They dump it on the stock market and the family just sort of goes off, enjoys their stately homes. And there is something I think really interesting about why a particular family retains that entrepreneurial zeal. And what I did feel about James is he's so up for it. He's so excited still by the business. But it sounds like there's been a few family fallouts over the years though so it hasn't been plain sailing cousin jeffrey's got a lot to answer for <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know if cousin jeffrey's family are uh, are listening i'd be fascinated to yeah. know if that rivalry <laughs> is still there yeah excellent right should we wrap things up then that's it from us here on the rest is money see you next week 